Let's find our way to Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is where we find ourselves this evening. We'll put in at verse 11 together. I encourage you to follow along the Bible of your own. Tonight we have a long string of joyful words sung out of the heart of a man restored to the joy of his salvation. One of my favorite things to hear when I'm watching or listening to an interview is when the subject is asked something and then gives this response. Well, I think the work speaks for itself. Because what happens next? I love it because they always then go on to speak about whatever they just said doesn't really need to be spoken about, right? They, they say, oh, my work speaks for itself. My movie or my piece of whatever, my art or my, my policy. Yeah, my, it speaks for itself. But then uh, they talk about all the details of it that you might have missed or their motivation, and they give a defense for why they think their work is profound and important. Here's what you don't ever see in an interview. You never see an interviewer ask someone a question, and then that person says, well, I think the work speaks for itself, and then they just go silent and stare at them. That never happens. They never just say, well, my work speaks for itself, and then they get up and leave the room. I mean, the whole point of the interview is that the speaker and the listener, they want to discuss something, they want to dissect it, they want to have it explained, and so, I don't know, that's one of the things that, that is just interesting to me. The work speaks for itself, and by that I mean I'm going to speak for my work for a while now. Now, the work of God is so outstanding and so tremendous that in one sense it speaks for itself, right? And the Bible kind of hints at this, the heavens declare the glory of God, not not with really words. I mean, they're just declaring it. As you look out there, it speaks for itself. Or I'm reminded of when the religious leaders there were, you know, berating and questioning the man who had been healed by Jesus, asked him all these different politicized questions. They were interrogating him, really. And what did he finally say? He said, look, I once was blind, and now I can see. The work speaks for itself. You're asking me all these questions about who, who I think Jesus is and who people say he is. I once was blind, but now I see. You tell me what the work says for itself. But when someone's work is so dramatic and so effective, we want to talk about it. I mean, when something is really uh, profoundly meaningful, uh, whether it's a movie or a book you've read or a piece of music you've listened to or a speech, some of the great speeches in history, Right? When, when someone's work is that effective and that important, we want to talk about it. We want to spread the word. That was certainly true of Asaph in this psalm, who underwent a radical transformation of heart and mind between verses 9 and 11. We looked all at verse 10 last time we were together, taking a look at that radical about face where all of a sudden his whole world, at least the world in his mind, Change. His circumstances were the same. His suffering hadn't abated, but he experienced such a radical transformation. What he received from God, I mean, it was just as self-evident as the blind man there in the Gospels. I, at this point, Asaph could sort of equally say, I once was suicidal, and now I'm in celebration. You look, as we talked about, the first two stanzas of the psalm are some of the bleakest words in Scripture, Right? And then all of a sudden, we have now the back half of the psalm, which is just full of celebration, satisfaction in the Lord, confidence in the Lord, the praise of the Lord, proclaiming how great the Lord is, great transformation. But this, 
you know, news this good needs to be talked about. And Asaph, Asaph has a lot to say about the Lord from here on out. In our verses tonight, he's going to reference God's works, his wonders repeatedly, his deeds, his way, his arm, and his strength. And having thought about all that activity of God, Asaph makes this assessment in verse 13. Who is so great a God as our God? Is your God great? I mean, if, if you were telling people about your God, or more importantly, if people were you know, drawing a picture of who your God is based upon what they know about you, would they say that your God is great? One of the things that struck me about Jim and Joan's uh, Gospel for Asia presentation a number of weeks back was just how they pointed out or how they demonstrated how cruel and how merciless the gods of the Hindu system are, right? Uh, there's hundreds of millions of gods, and each one of them is crueler than the last. The only thing great about those gods in that system was how great are the burdens that the people have to carry in order to try to appease these angry false deities. The things that the Hindu people feel like they have to do to themselves or to others in order to try to make the god leave them alone. Uh, there's nothing great about them. I mean, pick a religion of, of the world throughout history. Try to find a God who is worthy to be called great, like the one true God of the Bible is great. The gods of human religions are not great. They're not greatly to be praised. Most often they are monsters to be avoided, right? I'm bringing you this offering so that you won't you know, attack us or so that you won't plague us, so that you won't do things to us. We're, we're, we're bringing you this to kind of it's kind of like throwing the piece of meat over the fence to the, the dog that's trying to break through, right? Just leave me alone, eat this thing instead, and I'll get you off my back for a little bit. These religions are constructed around the ideas of these false gods in order to try to appease their anger or their intemperance. But our God, the God of the Bible, is great in a way that nothing can compare to. In his work, in his wonders, in his ways, nothing else even registers on the graph next to him. So let's think about those works as Asaph talks about them, starting there in verse 11. It says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Just think for a moment, just ponder in your mind there, just the amount of work that God has done for humanity since the beginning of time. Or, or just the amount of work that he did uh, contained in the pages of Scripture in biblical history. The amount of work that he's done all around the world in ancient and modern world history, or in our nation's history, or in the life of this church, or in your own life. The God of the Bible is not some existential power, it's not some force like some religions would suggest, uh, but he is an active person who makes it his business to involve himself in the lives and the stories, not just of one culture or one generation, but in each and every life from Adam on down in an unbroken succession from life to life, including yours and mine. That's a busy God doing a lot of work. There's nobody who's ever been born where he says, oh man, I missed that one. I, I forgot to do something for him or her. I, I overlooked that one. It's kind of like when, you know, you get like a defective toy from, from the store, right? And I, yeah, they just, they just let this one through. Where was the quality control guy? Of all the people who have ever lived throughout all of human history, in every generation and in every culture and in every place, there's never been one person where the Lord was like, I missed that one on the assembly line. Rather, God has involved himself, made it his business to involve himself in their lives, 
in every single one, every era, every culture, every place around the world, every generation. Every human life, every life at all, has its source in God and has been the object of God's love, right? That's what the Bible says. Now, sadly, many of those people ignore that love and reject it. They leave God's precious gifts unopened. But the wonderful works of the Lord are faithful for each person from the knitting of their body together in their mother's womb to the faithful offer of salvation, the forgiveness of their sins, to the striving with mankind that they might be saved and transformed by his power. I mean, when, when we just start trying to think about all the things that God makes it his business to do, think of all the people who have ever lived. We don't even know how many people that is. Or, and I, I can't comprehend how many a billion is, Right? Not to mention the 8 billion people that live on the planet right now. Not to mention all the billions of people who have ever lived on the planet. Now think about how God knitted each and every one of them in their mother's room, on a womb, on purpose, with, with intentions and with care as a, as a master craftsman, right? And then he worked in their lives in order to reach out to them, placing eternity in their hearts, presenting them with genuine offers to discover him, right? There's nobody out there who can't, you know, can't call out to God or can't seek after God in some way. I mean, we, we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how he scatters people around the world so that they will grope after him. Now think about not only does God, you know, sort of offer the gospel one time to every single person who's ever lived, but the Bible explains how he strives with man, how he keeps offering. And we could all say in our own personal testimonies, you know, how the Lord didn't just come one time and one time only and say, here's the gospel and then that's it. This is your one shot. I mean, he keeps calling out from life to life, from person to person. I mean, there's so much work that the Lord is doing. And that's just the work that he's doing in human lives. Not to mention the fact that Jesus said, hey, when one sparrow falls to the ground, when one bird hits your back window and dies there, uh, <laughs> or the Bible says that God knows about that sparrow and that the hairs of your head are numbered and that he, you know, has all things in his hands, right? I mean, these are the wonderful works of God. Psalm 66 says this plainly, Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing toward the sons of men. And so uh, we just celebrate that and we echo that. The Bible reveals that not only does God work tirelessly in our lives, he will, if need be, supernaturally bypass the laws of nature in order to accomplish his work. We see that a lot in the Gospels, of course. We serve a miracle-working God. He has accomplished these great wonders, not just once or twice, but throughout the generations. And we know from Scripture that he has more miraculous wonders in store as we walk with him and as he finishes what he started. A lot of things are going to go down at the end of human history, and the Lord is going to continue to work wonders and continue to uh, work supernaturally. Verse 12 of our text says this, I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. So here, in response to remembering the wonderful works of God in verse 11, Asaph points out two activities of his own. He says he will meditate and he will talk about God's deeds. First, the meditation. When Asaph says he remembers, he doesn't just mean he makes a list and then that's it. He thinks through the work of God, the testimony of Scripture, the history of God's dealings with man in general and in the nation of Israel and in his own life personally. 
In the Bible, meditation isn't the emptying of the mind like we think of in the mystical New Age sense. We, our word's kind of been stolen by, you know, Eastern thought or some of these other religions or the New Age ideas. And, well, meditation means I just kind of clear my head. I empty my consciousness out and just say om and, you know, something will flood in. You don't want whatever's about to flood in, but that's, that's, that word meditation kind of carries that baggage for us right now. Well, in the Bible, that's not what meditation means at all. In the Bible, meditation means to fill your mind with thoughts, thinking intently and at length about the Lord and about His Word, to fill our thoughts with the Word of God. And then Asaph says there, not only am I thinking about these things, meditating about them, I'm talking about them too. He's preaching these truths about God enthusiastically and with thanksgiving. And so he's taken up the call all of us have been given by the Lord to spread the word about who God is and what he has done. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that one of your unfinished projects in your car, around the house, something that's not done, that needs, be, needs doing, that bathroom that needs to be redone, that light fixture you want swapped out, whatever it is. What if tomorrow someone came to your door and said, sir, ma'am, I'm a craftsman. I heard you need your bathroom remodel finished. Uh, if we had a more trusting society, we would say, yeah, that's true. But if you're me, I just say, please leave and shut my door. <laughs> but imagine that the craftsman then said, listen, I- I'd love to come in and take a look. And you let him in and he says, do you mind if I, you know, put a wrench on a couple of things, fix a couple items? And you see, it'll be no charge. And you say, yeah, sure, why not? Seems too good to be true, but you give him the go ahead. A short time later, you come back to your bathroom. You see it's completely finished. Not only is it finished, but he gave you all the upgrades. You would have got it had they not been so expensive. The work is done perfectly. He even cleaned up after himself. And as he's walking out, he says, yeah, there's no charge. But he hands you his card and he says, you know, here's my card. Let me know if you need anything else. Uh, If you have any friends that need some work done, let them know. Now, if somebody did that, wouldn't you spread the word? I mean, that's a story worth telling because it's so unusual. Right? How could anyone believe someone would be so generous? I mean, it's an unbelievable story, right? Of course. But had that happened, or if that happened, you would tell your friends, hey, here's what happened. They say, no way. And you say, hey, come see my bathroom. I'll show you. And here's the guy's card. And we would spread the word, of course. We wouldn't just say, well, forget that guy. I don't even want to know anything about him. That's a great story of generosity and kindness and great work done. And we would, we would want to tell our friends about this crazy guy who came by and did all this stuff for us for free. Now, listen, in this analogy, Jesus is not the craftsman who's fixing up your, your bathroom, right? The story is just meant to illustrate that if someone did such great and lavish work for you, you'd be hard-pressed not to spread the word. And the same was true for Asaph. Now, I remember years ago, we were living out in a different house and we had to get a well dug. Our old, regular old well collapsed, and so we had to get a new well dug. And uh, We ended up finding these guys, and they did such great work, and they were so personable, and they were so friendly and so helpful, and they helped us understand what was going on. They came back. They, they did an upgrade for us with no charge. I mean, it was really great. And I had no one to tell. Does anybody here need a well dug? Probably not, right? And, I, I was, he, and you know what he said to me? He's, I said, hey, just thank you for like, how kind you've been to us. He saved us a bunch of money. And he said, hey, well, you know, just spread the word. And I'm thinking, I don't have any word to spread. I want to tell somebody, but I don't know anyone, and I'm never going to know anyone who has to dig a well. 
And so I like felt, I still feel bad about it to this day. If you need a well dug, you call Gene, not me, this other guy, Gene, Haynes and Sons. Anyway, get the number from me. But, um, you know, I wish I could have like spread the word and like directed somebody to them and say, hey, use these guys. I still, this is true, I still, when I'm driving past, you know, Agland or whatever, I see, uh, does anybody here uh, dig wells for a living? No? <laughs> Let's just be clear here. I drive by past, I see somebody who's not Haynes and Sons, I'm like, those people are suckers, they should be using Gene. He was the best guy ever, right? And so the, the, the point is, if someone did such great work for you, you want to spread the word. You want to tell your friends. You want to say, hey, you should use this guy. And so the same was true of Asaph when he thought through the wonderful works of God and started realizing all that God has done, not just in human history, not just in the nation of Israel, but in his own life, man, he, was, he wanted to spread the word. He wanted to talk about it. And I would say, you know, if I look within my own life and I think, well, I don't have anything to talk about concerning God, okay, well, then maybe I'm not being thoughtful enough about what he's done for me. Maybe I'm not filling my mind with thoughts about all that God has done for me. Not just for me, but for my family. Not just for my family, but for my church and for this community. And just you can keep going out, out, out farther than we can even comprehend. Asaph's thoughtful meditation about the work of the Lord not only led him to spread the word with enthusiasm and thanksgiving, it also brought him some profound realizations. Look at verse 13. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thinking about what God had done led Asaph to realize things about who God is and how he acts. So what led to who and how? Asaph writes, your way is in the sanctuary. Or perhaps your version says, your ways are holy. We could say it this way, God, your road is sacred and set apart. The way you do things is special and is consecrated. And that's true. God is holy and his ways are holy and his path is holy and therefore he's calling us to be holy. And Jesus said it very plainly. Be holy because your father in heaven is holy. And so we are to go the way of the sanctuary, right? Putting ourselves in this verse. What was the sanctuary during Asaph's time? Well, it was a place dedicated to the service of God, the place where the presence of God was residing. And that describes who we are today, if you're a Christian here tonight. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are the sanctuary now. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And then Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, Therefore you are no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so today, in the time we find ourselves, rather than some tent or some stone building, God's sanctuary is in the hearts of his people individually and corporately. We are the dwelling place of God, set apart for service for God, and we are the place where his spirit inhabits. The way of God for us is to be filled with the Holy Spirit then, right? If, if Asaph is saying, your way is in the sanctuary, how, how does that sort of convert and apply to us? Well, we are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit now, and so the way of God for us is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to walk in holiness and to be built up individually and corporately together so that the movements and the progress of our lives might proclaim God's greatness and majesty. 
That's an important thing for all of us to remember. Verse 14, you are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. In verse 11, Asaph references the wonders of old, right? But here he reminds us that God still does wonders. You're the God who does wonders. Not the God who did wonders, but the God who does wonders as well. He hasn't stopped. And his work isn't hidden away or encoded so that only a select few can notice them. You don't have to have magical glasses that you found in the wilderness to, you know, see the works of God. It says that he's declared his strength among the peoples. His work is conspicuous and observable among the nations. We can see God intervening. We see God transforming lives. We see God accomplishing prophecy. As Christians, we are meant to continually have testimonies of how God is working. God wants to work through us. He wants his work to be seen through our lives and through the things that he's doing in and around our lives. And that doesn't mean that the work of God is always going to be incredible or miraculous in our day-to-day life, right? But God is busy doing work in us and through us and around us. At least that's the plan. And so we should be regularly able to share what God's doing in our lives, even if we don't understand the why God is doing it and if we don't understand the, you know, how it's going to resolve. But here's how God's working in my life right now. Here's what I'm going through. Here's how, you know, what I feel like the Lord has been directing me in. You know, here, here's how I'm growing and, and here's how I'm communing with the Lord. It says there, you have declared your strength among the peoples. It begs the question, how does God declare his strength today? Well, he can and he does still work what we would call wonders, miracles. He's still the God of miracles. But in this dispensation of grace, in this church age, we've been told that God declares his strength through our weakness. Jesus told Paul this in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And so this is the deal. Now, weakness is not something generally we order up for ourselves at the buffet line, right? Uh, I'm not praying for weakness tonight when we go to corporate prayer. But it is part of the program. And as an encouragement here to us, I mean, if we polled anyone, who here wants to be weak? It's normal and natural for us to say, well, I don't you know, I don't, want to ex- I don't want to experience suffering. I don't want to experience weakness. But we're also presented with this truth in the Bible that God's strength is made perfect through our weakness, put on display before the world. And so let's encourage ourselves. That's, that's the reality. But let's encourage ourselves here. Look at Asaph for a minute. We find him here in Psalm 77 in some of the weakest days of his life. Weaker than maybe any other man had been. I mean, we looked at those first two stanzas and it was just stressful. A man completely at the end of his rope. A man who had said, hey, God's done with me. Actually, God's torturing me. He's failed his promises. He has no more work for us. He, he's left us. We're on our own. I mean, that's weakness. That's, a, that's the breaking point, right? And so he was in these weak, weak days But then look here at the wonderful work of God he's able to experience. 
Because of the work of God in Asaph's life here, he is then able to exhibit incredible, lasting spiritual strength. These weak days for Asaph produced a song that has lasted 3,000 years, a song you and me are talking about. No, I, don't, I can't think of any popular song, you know, that's lasted 300 years, right? This song has lasted 3,000 years, and it's ministered to an uncountable number of people, and it keeps ministering. It keeps speaking. You know, again, we're thinking these big thoughts about all the lives that God is working in. Try to think for a minute about this year, how many people are going to read Psalm 77 and be ministered to by that? Well, that was born out of the weakest, darkest days of Asaph's life, perhaps. But through that weakness, God shows his strength. God is able to minister. God is able to bring forth this spiritual fruit that was lasting and that uh, was really, really meaningful. And so God declares his strength in a lot of ways. One of the preferred methods he uses in this day and age is our weakness. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. Verse 15, you have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. So God himself came to the rescue. He paid the ransom price of redemption by giving his own son so that you and I might be saved from the penalty we rightly deserve. We deserve all the penalty and more for our sin. And God himself said, hey, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to use my own hands. I'm going to get down into that, and I'm going to rescue you myself. I'm going to pay by pouring out the blood of my son in your place. He rescued himself. Uh, he, he himself rescued, rather. The Lord did not send a surrogate, but with his own army snatched us from death. And we are reminded that God's deeds toward men are redemptive. They're not vindictive. The God of heaven and earth, he's not like Zeus or these other Greek gods, which were just weirdo losers. He's not like the gods of, you know, the Hindu system that are you know, torturing their people and doing all these terrible things. His works are redemptive. They're motivated by tender mercy and compassion. And there, as the verse closes, Asaph brings a couple of examples of those who have experienced God's redemption. First, Jacob and Joseph. God's love is for the slave and the scoundrel, the grifter and the prisoner. Uh, The Lord loves them the same, and he saves them the same. Though compared to Jacob, Joseph was innocent. Man, Joseph was a, you know, a real choir boy compared to his dad Jacob as far as the way that he lived his life. But he was just, he was just as doomed as Jacob was. He was just as much in need of salvation as his father, the father, the one who lied and supplanted, the, who wrestled with God. Right? If you were saying, "Who do you want to be? Who do you wish you were like in the Bible, Jacob or Joseph?" I want to be like Joseph. <laughs> I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be weak like Joseph. Can I be rich like Jacob, but good like Joseph? But the Lord had to save both of them. But notice, too, the Lord's love was the same for both of them. He loved the scoundrel and the slave. He loved Jacob. He loved Joseph. They both needed salvation. They both got salvation the same way. The Lord didn't have one kind of compassion for one man and a different kind for another. He loved them both the same. And Asaph then also calls our attention to another example, the sons of these men, which reminds us that God's redemptive work 
kept going. It wasn't just for these two guys. It kept going. And it's still going strong. He, by his own arm, with his own hands, is accomplishing the rescue work, saving men and women and children all over the globe because of his grace. By his own arm. Well, what's his arm today? Well, you and I are his arm today. We are the body of Christ. He is our head. And so now when the Lord, when we see you have with your arm redeemed your people, well, how does that work today? It works through us, accomplishing the work that God wants to do in and through us and being the agents of his redemption, right? Bringing that love and that grace and that compassion and allowing God to use our lives as a channel of living waters and of rescue and all of these things. The Lord says, oh yeah, I'm still using my arm and my hand, and now I have made you my body. Uh, not only have I rescued you, I've, I've brought you into my household and made you sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. And not only that, you're going to be the body of Christ now. Not only that, you're going to be the bride of Christ. I mean, all of these things, these wonderful works that the Lord has done for us. And so, uh, amazing thoughts to think. And Asaph has come full circle here. A few verses ago, he had been so convinced that God had completely given up on man, that his promise had failed, right? Those six sad questions that he lobbied at the Lord there in the second stanza. But here he speaks the truth that God's dedication toward mankind continues and will continue unabated until the work is done. That's true for human history. It's true for your life as well. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's true for you, it's true for all of us as a group, it's true for this world. Now, as we close, we remember that the underlying theme of, you know, this sort of series through these three psalms is that these songs weren't just for the author, they weren't, you know, just for Israel, they were also personally dedicated to this guy, Jejaphim, specifically addressed to him. And then through him, we've seen that they are also addressed to us, right? And they can become our songs. And this stanza in particular, it can really become ours in a very real way. Because Asaph's words remind us of what happened on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church. This is Acts 2, starting in verse 7. It says, Then they all were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are, are, we, are not all those who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language, in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. These were geography people, apparently. <laughs> Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues what the wonderful works of God. And the same spirit that was giving strength to Asaph to bring forth incredible spiritual fruit in a time of weakness now empowers you and I to do the exact same thing to understand and the truth of God, to speak forth the wonderful works of God as living testimonies, walking in holiness, enjoying the joy of our salvation and the greatness of our God. And so this is our song. Make this stanza your song and, and spread the word about what God has done and how he's still working life to life, heart to heart in every place around the world. Uh, for man's good and for his glory. Amen.